podcast around the corner the Nora Efron podcast dear listener I like to start my podcast to you as if we're already in the middle of a conversation I pretend that we're the oldest and dearest friends as opposed to what we actually are people who met via a podcast streaming platform isn't it so satisfying when you mash a key lime pie that you made no less into your cheating husband's face in front of a dinner party of friends this month Dan and I will be discussing Nora's third screenplay Heartburn based on her 1983 novel of the same name Before we get to the discussion, I'll leave you with Nora's key lime pie recipe. The key lime pie is very simple to make. First, you line a 9-inch pie plate with a graham cracker crust. Then beat 6 egg yolks. Add 1 cup lime juice, even bottled lime juice will do, 2 14-ounce cans sweetened condensed milk, and 1 tablespoon grated lime rind. Pour into the pie shell and freeze. Remove from freezer and spread with whipped cream. Let sit 5 minutes before serving. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the podcast Around the Corner, the Nora Ephron podcast. Join us every month as we celebrate the work of writer, filmmaker and queen of romantic comedies, Nora Ephron. I'm Shawnee Mead and once again I'm joined by my good friend and esteemed co-host, Dan Kalan. Welcome, Dan. Hey, hey, this is going to be a fun episode. I'm really looking forward to this one. Me too. I think it's the first, not just because it's based on her life, but it's the first very Nora feeling film. Yes. The others had subject matter that wasn't Nora at all. So this one is very Nora-esque. We really had to search for Nora when we talked about Silkwood. You know, we had to find the Nora in that screenplay. But here, I mean, not just because it's based on her novel, but, you know, she wrote the screenplay and it becomes very clear to a Nora fan, right? I came into this one as an established fan. So this felt very familiar. I was surprised kind of at how familiar it felt for me because I can see how this was sort of the beginning of this career trajectory. Mm. Well, I know we're going to talk about When Harry Met Sally next, right? That's our next movie. Yeah. But I could see the sort of genesis of When Harry Met Sally in Heartburn. I could see a lot of these things that would come to be hallmarks of Nora as a screenwriter. And then, of course, they become her hallmarks over the course of her career into her future films and Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, Julia and Julia, and so on. So it was really cool to see her kind of find her voice. Mm. I don't think she was entirely successful. I think this movie does have some problems. But all in all, I was very pleasantly surprised. I had a really good time watching Heartburn. And yeah, I think this is a really fun way. Like It's it's almost like I wish this was the first one we were talking (laughs) about. Because the first two, we really had to work to be like, okay, where does Nora Mm. begin? Where does the movie start I had to think of them separately here it's all Nora you know it's unmistakably Nora so it was really I felt at home watching Heartburn yes well speaking of Heartburn this month we are discussing the 1986 film Heartburn once again directed by Mike Nichols written by Nora Ephron and Meryl Streep is back once again and also stars Jack Nicholson they're back together this time without Alice Arlen it's a uh, solo Nora script 
stopped. But uh, yeah, the band is back together once again. It's the second movie in a row where they've amassed this incredible cast. Mm. The cast is just stacked. A lot of character actors, a lot of people I've seen in a bunch of other things. So it's really fun to watch this movie and enjoy all of that, right? I'm I'm not just Mm. watching it for Meryl. I'm not just watching it for Jack Nicholson. But there's so many other players in here that I enjoy. So as a complete experience, I think that's really fun too. Yes, and weirdly, the timing of us doing Heartburn has oddly lined up with the timing of Salad Dressing Gate. (laughs) Members of the Nora community will know all about that. Heartburn, Nora, Nora's Vinaigrette were trending last, was it last week? It feels like it was so long ago, but the discourse has already moved on to something else. It's already old news. Yeah. But yeah, everyone was talking about Heartburn. Everyone was talking about the Vinaigrette. And I mean, while I don't love that someone else's stupid celebrity drama is the reason people are talking about Nora, but you know, anything that gets more people buying and reading Heartburn is fine with me. And it also just shows that Nora is always relevant. There's no such thing as bad publicity. You know, I agree with you that this is maybe not the best way to bring Heartburn into Mm. the public eye in 2022. However, the fact that people are talking about it is a good thing indisputably right and so at the end of the day it's not the way we wanted it to happen but it did happen and so more people are are becoming exposed to Nora and that's always going to be a good thing yeah that's definitely a good thing and I feel like this whole situation if Nora knew about it I think she'd love the everything is copy aspect but she Mm -hmm. would absolutely detest that her name was brought into it and that you know salad dressing brands were getting into it it was a whole thing but yeah if you missed out on salad dressing gate and you haven't read heartburn or seen heartburn definitely do both of those things but I'd probably recommend reading the book first just so you have the background but also if you have read the book but you haven't read it for a while I would highly recommend the audiobook version of Heartburn read by Meryl Streep which is amazing her performance is sublime and she just like completely brings Nora's words to life in such a magical way and it's probably the best audiobook I've ever listened to so definitely get that into your ears yeah that's perfect so I've never read the novel my only experience with Heartburn is this movie and I just watched it for the first time less than a week ago as of this recording. So watched it a couple times this week and so I entered it kind of completely fresh but I gotta say I'm really interested in reading the book. Now I've heard from some Nora fans that the book is better than the movie and considering the issues that I have with the movie I would really like to read that book and or or listen Mm -hmm. to it because I think Meryl reading me that book would be an incredible experience. So yeah, it it only made me want to read the book more, which is super cool. Well, that's great. Oh yeah, go and read it. Go and read it right now, Dan. What are you doing recording this episode? Get to the bookstore. (laughs) Stop recording. I'm just going to download the audiobook. We'll do this another time. Yeah, we'll come back. (laughs) We'll just let you do a live commentary for the five and a half-ish hours of the audiobook because it's quite a short, it's a very slim book. It's definitely, you could read it in a day, in a weekend. Uh, Yeah, my history with this one, this one is actually my first not new to me, Nora, for the podcast, so that's exciting. I first saw the film, I'd say a couple of years ago, it was pre-2020, so that's more than a couple of years ago, but yeah, I saw the movie first, I think, because I'd heard about it and I knew that it was based on Nora's book, but I hadn't read the book yet. I mean, the first time I saw the movie, I didn't mind it, I kind of felt it was a bit, I mean, we'll get into this later, but it felt a little bit like it should have been better, but it was a bit flat, Mm -hmm. but yeah, then in 2020, I read the book and I absolutely 
adored the book. I love that the recipes are throughout. I love that it's just, even though it's written as Rachel Samstadt, that it's just very Nora. Well, I mean, not just because it's based on her life. It's just, it just screams Nora, everything yeah. about it. I've watched the film a couple of times since then, and I, I listened to the audiobook in preparation for doing this episode rather than read the book again. Just so I was experiencing it in a different way. And I think because Meryl plays Rachel in the film, having her do the audiobook is perfect, but it brings another level of sort of media experience to the whole heartburn oeuvre. Yeah, I would not have expected Meryl to narrate an audiobook. You know, she's not one of those people that I might, like, my brain just doesn't jump to Meryl to do that sort of thing. I think she's done a few. Like, I can't imagine this book being read by anybody else. I'm so glad that she chose to do it because in my mind, I mean, maybe it's because I just watched the movie this week and, and I have no other frame of reference, but Rachel Sam that is Meryl Streep, right? Like, I don't want to hear her in a different voice. I want to mm. hear Meryl Streep. Yeah, well, definitely. Yes, well, seeing as we've started talking about the novel first, I thought we'd talk a little about the history of the novel before we get to the film, because, of course, there'd be no film that we're talking about today without Nora's novel. So, yes, this was published in 1983 and tells the fictionalized version of the end of Nora and Carl Bernstein's marriage. So I'll just read you the synopsis of the book from the Virago Modern Classics edition. Seven months into her pregnancy, Rachel Samstadt discovers that her husband Mark is in love with another woman. The fact that this woman has a neck as long as an arm and a nose as long as a thumb is no consolation. <laughs> Food sometimes is, though, since Rachel is a cookery writer, and between trying to win Mark back and wishing him dead, she offers us some of her favourite recipes. Heartburn is a roller coaster of love, betrayal, loss, and most satisfyingly, revenge. Yes, it's a, well, I think people often say lightly fictionalized, which Nora didn't hate the term, but I don't think she loved it because she said it's often applied to things written by women, the, you know, thinly right. disguised and often books based on real things written by men are not referred to in that way. So she uh, didn't love that. But yes, there are things have been changed. Clearly, Nora was not a food writer. She didn't write cookbooks. And in the book, she has a sort of Julia Child-esque cable network cooking show where she has celebrities on. I think she's had a there was like a Nobel Prize winner came on and was doing cooking. Oh, interesting. And Mark is a political columnist, which is, and I think he sometimes writes a column just about other things that he kind of steals anecdotes from friends. So the everything right. is copy thing that he learnt from Rachel. And interestingly, in Mark's surname in the book is Mark Feldman, which, as you'll note, He's called Mark Foreman in the film. Yeah. That was a change that Carl Bernstein wanted made because as part of their divorce proceedings, he somehow wangled his way into getting approval of the script. So he was allowed to read the script and make suggestions about things he'd like changed, which Nora was not pleased about in one of bit, course. obviously, because he was sort of very openly disparaging about the book in the first place because he didn't like that, you know, everyone knew that it wasn't fictional than it was about them and he was equally as disparaging about the film <laughs> yeah i mean the only reasoning i can think of as to why he would want the name changed is, is because you know his name was bernstein feldman is also a jewish surname if i'm not mistaken and so i think that uh, in order to put some more distance between himself and this fictional character to give the character a non-jewish name might that might have been his motivation you know because otherwise i can't i can't see a reason why you would change 
Feldman to Foreman. Well, Dan, seeing as you're speaking of a reason, I have that very reason for you. Oh! A speculated reason, but many people feel that seeing as the name Mark Feldman is quite similar to the name Mark Felt, aka Deep Throat, so people feel that that was once again Nora throwing in, I know who it is. I feel like the fact that Carl wanted it changed, you know, make your own conclusions about this, but I feel like perhaps that might confirm people's suspicions about that. Huh, okay. Yeah, so I think that was just a Nora doing a ha-ha, I figured out who Deep Throat is, and seeing as I'm writing a book about my jerk of a husband, I'm going to throw it in. So <laughs> that seems like Nora all over. Like, we'll never know sure. if that is why, but I feel like that's definitely what she was doing. <laughs> yes, but yes, in the Virago Modern Classics edition, which is the copy I have, which the cover is lovely. Well, you buy it just for the cover, but if you did buy that one, because the cover is beautiful. She was talking about the fact that she described it as thinly disguised, the fact that she was perhaps more composed than she was in the real life situation, and she thinly disguised her husband by giving him a beard that belonged to a friend of hers. So it's in the book, (laughs) Mark has a beard, which uh, Carl Bernstein didn't have, obviously. Right. But she decided that the character of Thelma Rice, who was actually a fictional version of Margaret Jay, who was the wife of the British ambassador to the United States, and her father was a former prime minister of Britain. She kept that she was unbelievably tall. He refers to that all the time about how tall she was. They make reference to that in in the movie as well, that she's just very tall. And Mm. I love that that detail carried over. It's such a fun thing to hang on to. But yeah, she said the unbelievably tall person he had the affair with remained unbelievably tall. It's my experience as a novelist that some things lose everything if they're disguised, even thinly, and that therefore it's best to just leave them alone. Right. Real quick, did you happen to notice that she borrowed the name Thelma Wright from Silkwood for this character? No, I didn't actually. So the older woman who Karen Silkwood is friendly with at the plant who we see get Mm. showered, like that first shower scene, the older woman, her name was Thelma Rice. And yeah, so the name carried over. I don't know if she had come up with that name prior to writing Silkwood or if it came from Silkwood, but there is a Thelma Rice in both movies, Mm. which I found really interesting. That is interesting. I think she was writing them at about the same time. Yeah, maybe she just thought the name was good and used it for both. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because in Silkwood it was a character that we were supposed to like. Yes. And then in this we don't. <laughs> we're not supposed <laughs> to like Thelma Rice whatsoever. Even though she remains sort of very much like an unseen presence. But we hear about her often. <laughs> yeah. But she's sort of this vague menacing presence that we don't really see. But but yes, there are certain things in the novel and in the film that didn't happen to Nora, which includes the getting robbed at her group therapy session. That didn't actually happen, but it did happen to a friend of Nora's who, the minute she told her the story, she sort of decided she would put that away somewhere for something maybe to use later on. Everything is copy. Right. Oh, yes, she kept that in. So that's, I'm not sure who the friend was, but I would love to know who that was. I wonder what she felt about it, because I feel like knowing Nora, you'd go, yeah, okay, I think that's what happens. And in this, it always happens that people tell a story and then Mark goes, I'm going to use that. And then his friend's like, but I want to use it. It's mine. And he's like, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, I was just about to say, I I love how that sort of personal philosophy worked its way into this screenplay, not just in one scene. It's in at least two scenes. And, you know, we've talked about this on the show before. So when those scenes played out in front of me, like I was like, oh, oh, everything is copy. You know, like if you're a writer and you hear something like, oh, I'll use that. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. But yeah, once again, she mentioned that her mother taught her everything is copy. Right. She said it again and again, and I've quoted her saying it again and again. As a result, I knew the moment my marriage ended that someday it might make a book if I could just stop crying. One of the things I'm proudest of is that I managed to convert an event that seemed to me hideously tragic at the time to a comedy. And if that's not fiction, I don't know what is. Which, I mean, that is the best way to do it. But yeah, she did refer to the fact that Carl was unhappy about her writing it in a book, but that she always thought that was silly. But she said, everyone always asks, was he mad at you for writing the book? And I have to say, yes. Yes, he was. He still is. It's one of the most fascinating things to me about the whole episode. He cheated on me and then got to behave as if he was the one who'd been wrong because I wrote about it. I mean, it's not as if I wasn't a writer. It's not as if I hadn't often written about myself. I'd even written about him. What did he think was going to happen? That I would take a vow of silence for the first time in my life? Yeah, never date (laughs) or marry a writer. (laughs) It's the only advice I can give anybody. I'm kidding. Don't wrong Nora. That's the advice. She's not going to just go quietly into the night about it. Yeah, the real lesson is don't be an asshole to your wife, I think. Hmm. And yeah, there's a couple of stories in I Feel Bad About My Neck of Nora writing about discovering Carl's affair. This story is entitled Everything is Copy. I'm seven months pregnant with my second child, and I've just discovered that my second husband is in love with someone else. She too is married. Her husband telephones me. He's the British ambassador to the United States. I'm not kidding. He happens to be the kind of person who tends to see almost everything in global terms. He suggests lunch. We meet outside a Chinese restaurant on Connecticut Avenue and fall into each other's arms, weeping. Oh, Peter, I say to him, isn't it awful? It's awful, he says. What's happening to this country? I'm crying hysterically, but I'm thinking, someday, this will be a funny story. She definitely uses that in Heartburn. That even though I think he's an undersecretary of state to something about Britain in the novel because she was, once again, thinly disguising things. <laughs> Right. Okay. So that was in the novel, but not in the movie. Yeah. Yes. In the book, there's several scenes of interaction between Rachel and Thelma's husband, because clearly Thelma is married as well. Yeah. It sounds like the novel was more true to life than the movie was. Yeah. Well, the novel, interestingly, begins once she's found out about the affair. And then Interesting. Okay. follows on that way. And then you get flashbacks of their marriage. And then really the book stops flashing back at the point that she goes back to Washington. And then the book keeps going from there. I know movies don't often like that sort of structure, but I think that's one of the things that I wish the movie had kept. Yeah. I feel like doing it just in a linear fashion just makes it a bit, I think that's always why I feel like it's a bit flat and it feels like it drags a bit. We're here for the story of what happens in the second half of the film. We know that it's about her being seven months pregnant, finding out her husband's cheating on it. That's like the meat of the story. So this feels like, can we get to that bit? Yeah. And it also feels like the way the movie is structured, like you said, structured linearly Mm. so we meet them before they establish their relationship Mm. and then the infidelity occurs about midway through and then the second half of the movie is really Mm. the stuff that i imagine fans of the novel were there to see right yeah and so i found that one of the things i didn't like about the movie and maybe this is a part of it is that the movie doesn't really spend a lot of time fleshing out these characters Mm. and i found that as a nora fan, even though I hadn't read the novel, coming into
into it as a Nora fan, knowing that it was the book and the movie were inspired by her real life relationship with Carl Bernstein and the mm-hmm. infidelity that occurred, that I already kind of had like this shorthand to understand these characters. But if I wasn't already a Nora fan coming in and I was just like, oh, this is a Meryl Streep movie, Jack Nicholson, Mike Nichols directed this, let me watch this. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'd be missing a lot of information. Yeah. And so if the movie had opened with Rachel discovering the infidelity, mm-hmm. then as a newcomer, I'm immediately interested. Okay, high drama right out of the mm-hmm. gate. A woman played by Meryl Streep who, you know, if you want the audience to like somebody immediately, Meryl's a pretty good choice for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that on the other side of that coin, Jack Nicholson is a great actor to cast if you need like a real bastard. Yeah. And so the casting is excellent. So if you started that movie with the infidelity, okay, now we're starting up here and we're going to find out what's going to happen. How did they meet? You know, like now all these questions come into my mind. Mm. And yeah, I think that structure of showing their origin and the evolution of their relationship through flashbacks would have worked so much better. So I'm glad to know that the novel is structured that way because I think that's the better way to tell this story. And thinking about it, I feel perhaps, like I don't know this, I don't know what changes he suggested, but I feel like this might have had something about Carl Bernstein's interference. Like I feel like maybe he went, I don't want you starting it there because then straight away you don't like Mark and maybe he was like wanting it that you maybe like get to know him and give him the benefit of the doubt like I don't know this but I feel like that could be something because then you might go otherwise off the bat they just hate the Mark character because straight away we're finding out that he's a cheater right it could be Carl Bernstein I suspect it may also have been Mike Nichols I haven't done a whole lot of research about this movie beforehand but I did do a little bit and I read that that once they got Jack Nicholson for the role Mike Nichols really wanted to sort of expand the character, expand that role for Nicholson, potentially make him a little bit more empathetic. And I'm going to read this trivia bit here. So after Jack Nicholson had replaced Mandy Patinkin, who was originally cast in that role, Mike Nichols coerced Nora Ephron into writing new scenes to give Jack Nicholson more to do. And then it was Meryl Streep who objected to that, saying, quote, it's the story of a woman who survives being hit by a bus. It's not about the bus. And mm. Nichols conceded that she was right. So the restructuring of the story could have been potentially on some level Mike Nichols. Mm. So that the audience likes Jack Nicholson from the beginning and then he becomes a jerk by the end. But I mean, by this point in his career, I feel like Jack Nicholson, he had played so many scumbag characters that like, he's the guy. Open your movie with the infidelity and then then, you know, we're still going to like Jack Nicholson because he's Jack Nicholson. He's always going to be kind of charismatic. He's a great actor. But I don't think we need to to like him and see him in a positive light from the get-go. Mm, I feel like that's what makes the film a bit, because I know lots of Nora fans always talk about the fact that they adore the book, but the movie just is somewhat lacking, which I totally agree. Like, I want yeah. it to be better. I want to like it more. And it's the cast is great. It's a story that I love. And I feel like it's always that problem with a book that's a first-person narrator, which then turns into a movie and I know it's always that struggle because movies don't always want to have a voiceover but that's why the novel is so funny but if it's just the beats of the story without Nora's humor and the way she writes it 
it's just there's a story beat there's another story beat like it doesn't have the humor and the real life Nora essence because yeah we're not hearing Rachel's thought yeah it feels conventional which is mm. one word I never want to associate with Nora Ephron and the book doesn't seem conventional like right. it's telling this very awful thing that's happened to this woman several all these awful things that are happening it's still about heavy things but it's much lighter in tone of course to Silkwood but it's still the worst thing is you can't compare the worst things that are happening in the films but it's still the worst thing that's ever happened to her is happening but she's still telling it in a Nora way there's still heart and humor and sarcasm and there's still all of that there which you take that away take the voice away it's just it's not it's not there yeah and also the events of this story are not like I mean the worst thing in the world for the person it's happening to but in the grand scheme of things is it the worst thing no, like we all know people who have been cheated on, you know, like these things happen every day to all kinds of people. I don't think the story itself is necessarily or the action of the story is, is all that interesting. So you have to find other ways to make it compelling. And I think mm-hmm. screwing around with the story structure could have been a way to do that. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like, yes, this is an incredibly personal, heartbreaking story for this particular person. And if we are on her side from the very first scene Mm. that makes everything else carry much more emotional weight because we are rooting for her but to to watch a couple meet fall in love have problems there's infidelity and then you know then it ends it's like okay well you know we all have seen this in our real lives whether it's happened to us or a friend or family member or whatever Mm. there was a lot of freedom here to be creative in other ways stylistically Mm. but yeah i really wish that this had been cut a different way and had it out of order and uh, i would have loved to have seen the flashbacks to show that relationship develop around the infidelity yeah if you're new to heartburn definitely read the book first because then you even though then you notice it's missing from the film you can take that with you into the film and i think it makes the film a bit more enjoyable than if you were just watching it like off the bat not knowing the history of it because otherwise it's just like a if it wasn't based on norris it is just a bit sort of generic mm-hmm. which is very unfortunate and i i wish that i didn't think that about it but that seems to be the consensus with nora fans all the ingredients are there but it's just a bit flat Before we get like too negative, you know, I want to say right now that I still really liked this movie. You know, I still came out of it really enjoying it, you know, but we're here to talk about warts and all, right? So yes, yes, we are. You know, we'll eventually get to the good stuff. But yeah, these are the things that I found disappointing. But again, ultimately, I still think this is a very good, we'll just say a very good movie for now. (laughs) I don't need to classify it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we've covered the novel. So let's get into the production of the film. So usually what I like to do is do a little history on the director and the leading lady. Seeing as we're back with Meryl and Mike Nichols, I don't need to do that. So I thought I'd just do a little what they've been doing since Silkwood, just a little mm-hmm. in between because Silkwood was 83. Yeah. So Silkwood was 83. This was 86. So in that time, Meryl made three other films. She made Falling in Love in 1984, a film called Plenty, which I haven't heard of, but in 1985, and then Out of Africa, one of her big films, also in 1985, which she was nominated for Best Actress for that as well. So big things. Meryl is just still going from strength to strength. She did have kind of a gap for a while of Oscar wins, but not of Oscar nominations because she has 21 nominations <laughs> so far up to now. And Mike Nichols, well, he didn't really do as much in between. He directed a stand-up 
special of Whoopi Goldberg's done on Broadway. Yeah, so that's what the two of those have been up to. And clearly, we've covered what Nora's been up to. Yep. She's written a novel. She's done this. But as I mentioned in our Silkwood episode, Mike Nichols thought that Heartburn, the book, would be great as a film. But Nora wasn't so sure about it. But he eventually convinced her that it would work as a film. And yes, she wrote the screenplay. And as I said, by that time, because she'd found out about Carl's affair in, I think, just after or around the time of Perfect Gentleman. So it's been a while. The divorce proceedings ended up being quite protracted. And yes, as I said before, Carl got that written in that he would get like you know rights to read things and apparently but he also had it explicitly put in that Nora wouldn't be allowed to do any extra everything as copy about him or their sons and also that he would be portrayed as an amazing and loving father at all times (laughs) But yes, so Mike Nichols convinced Nora eventually. She wrote the screenplay. Clearly it was hampered by things. And yes, there's a quote in Erin Carlson's book, Queen Merrill, in the chapter that covers Heartburn from Carrie Fisher. Nora told me she wasn't pleased with Heartburn. I guess it was the restrictions imposed by her ex-husband. I feel like of Nora's scripts, she probably wasn't as happy with this one. I mean, we know she was very unhappy with Perfect Gentleman, but I think she was probably very unhappy with this one because she was all about, you know, telling what happened and she'd been able to do it in the book. And, you know, Nora liked to be in control of telling her story. And so she got to have the laugh rather than other people. So then having the person that destroyed your marriage and sort of destroyed your life also coming in and then destroying your screenplay of your book about said event. Yeah. That would really piss me off. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, so this was Meryl's second film with Mike Nichols. They then also went on to make Postcards from the Edge, which, speaking of Carrie Fisher, is based on Carrie Fisher's novel of the same name. That came out in 1990. And then later on in the the 90s or the early 2000s, Meryl was in Angels in America. And I think Mike Nichols directed a few of the episodes of that, or he was involved in some way. But yes, speaking of the cast, I read that seeing as Dustin Hoffman played Carl Bernstein in All the President's Men. He had been approached to play the role of Mark in Heartburn, but because he knew Carl Bernstein, he didn't want to do that, so he declined. And yes, as you mentioned before, Mandy Patinkin was cast in the role as Mark. I think from reading in Aaron's book, I think it was sort of, he was still quite new to getting into films. I think the studio could get him for quite cheap, so they decided to have him, but I think he filmed like a day's worth of footage, and then he was let go. Yeah, my understanding is he and Meryl didn't have the chemistry that they were hoping for. And so after a day of shooting, they decided to replace him. But I mean, I also feel like Mandy Patinkin is great, but everything else he's been in, the kind of characters he plays, he's not the right fit for this because you're not going, he's a terrible cheating bastard. He's not, he doesn't have that. And what we know about Mandy Patinkin as himself, especially with all his videos with his wife and their son, like he's just not that kind of guy whatsoever. And also from what I know about his other acting, acting wise, he's very into portraying characters that he finds some sort of truth in and he doesn't really like playing characters characters that completely differ from him right. morally and that sort of thing, which I think is why when he was in Criminal Minds, he eventually <laughs> left. All of the darkness of that didn't really jibe with his truth. Right, right, right. So yeah, that wouldn't have worked anyway. So I'm sad that he got fired, but I'm not sad that he isn't in it. Yeah, it sucks that he lost a job, right? But mm. I do agree that it was probably poor casting 
initially in the, in the first place to have him play that character. Nicholson is not, in my opinion, the perfect choice to play Mark. Overall, I have some issues with that casting. He's a good actor to put in there if you just need that shorthand of like, okay, this guy is unlikable. He's going to be a yeah. jerk. Like he works for someone that straight up is untrustworthy. Yeah. You know, at the beginning when they meet, he has this reputation of being extremely single, which means he's mm-hmm. out, you know, carousing around town and has like a million girlfriends, which, yeah, I buy that about Jack Nicholson because he just has kind of, he is an amazing actor, but he just has a untrustworthy, creepy vibe, not just because I've seen Batman, but just everything right. he's, in, he's like, yep. he hasn't done Batman yet, but he's that kind of guy. When the movie needs you to hate Mark, he is great. Mm. Where I struggle is with the good times. You know, I don't really buy Meryl and Jack as believable, happy, romantic couple. It's only when things go south, I'm just Mm. like, okay, yeah, I can believe this. I can believe that their relationship is rocky. I just never really believe that they love each other, which is unfortunate because the movie kind of depends on that foundation. Well, I think with, yeah, the structure that this movie went with, I think if they'd done it the other way. That's another reason. It wouldn't have, you'd go, yeah, that's fine. I totally buy that. And then you'd go, yeah, we're seeing flashbacks, but I already hate it. So it's that. Exactly. It would have worked. But yeah, I think because Mike Nichols had worked with Jack Nicholson and two films before this i think they needed someone last minute he knew him but it did Mm -hmm. cost them because mandy patinkin apparently wasn't costing them a lot but clearly getting jack nicholson in at last minute you know cost a bit of green i could buy dustin hoffman in that role i understand Mm. his reasons for not wanting to do it but i could i could believe him in that role however he was also he played opposite merrill in kramer versus kramer so Mm. clearly they had chemistry i could absolutely see that working much better getting divorced before yeah i mean like they had already well-worn territory by this point so you know it wouldn't have necessarily been inspired casting Mm. but it would have been uh, a reliable choice i read that jack nicholson vaguely knew carl or something and apparently carl was thrilled that jack nicholson would be playing a version of him but they're also (laughs) going out of their way to have mark not be anything like carl so i think they really just leaned into his jack nicholson-ness for that but yeah, I do agree, especially in scenes where they're singing, they're doing yeah. just romantic stuff. I always just feel like he's about to do something nefarious. I mean, that could also <laughs> just be because of my other knowledge of Jack Nicholson's work. That bit doesn't feel genuine to me. Yeah, I found myself having to watch a lot of those scenes and focus on the screenplay, right? Because I think that the, those scenes do work and I do enjoy those scenes. It's really just Jack who is distracting and sort of taking away from the, the script. It was last minute. They didn't really have the time but I feel like this casting of this first of all they went with someone that you could probably buy in the romantic bits and then they went in someone that you could buy in the cheating bit but they needed one man who could do both yeah they were filming they needed someone so yeah it just which is funny to me because as he got older like through the 90s and the early 2000s he was he became sort of an older romantic lead you know yeah because like he's the, in as, as good as Nancy it gets yeah something's gonna give so he had the capacity to do it but yeah for whatever reason it doesn't work for me here no it doesn't 
Yes. And also, I didn't read that even though the fact that Meryl, one, was married, two, was pregnant at the time of filming, she did wear a prosthetic belly for this film because Rachel is meant to be seven months pregnant and Meryl was only in her first trimester, so she wasn't at that level of pregnancy that she needed to be, but she was pregnant at the time. But apparently, Jack Nicholson took quite a fancy to Meryl. And despite the fact that, yes, she was pregnant and married and had another child (laughs) and wasn't interested, apparently he kept being inappropriate and kept making advances. But apparently everyone said Meryl, as powerful and graceful as Meryl is, handled it in a firm Meryl way. Go Meryl. But also that just seems very Jack Nicholson to me that seems exactly it's the kind of thing he would do which I guess I was gonna say earlier this year I really I really dived into his like late 60s early 70s work mm. and like the people he was hanging out with and like I'm not at all surprised to hear that yeah speaking about Meryl's children because Nora and Carl have two sons so in the book Rachel and Mark have two sons Sam and Nathaniel in the book but oh for the movie version we don't actually know the gender of the second baby but yes they have a daughter called Annie, played by Mamie Gummer, Meryl's daughter. Yep. But yes, I think they were worried about claims of nepotism, so she was credited as Natalie Stern. (laughs) But clearly, she looks like Meryl's kid. But I mean, I think it works perfectly, because it really just it really just gives Rachel this very natural, genuine feeling of being a mother, because it's her own actual baby. Yes. And all their scenes together, they're just really lovely. Yeah, there are moments where I, I'm watching Meryl, so I think like the second time through I was able to like focus on little details, performances. Mm. I was kind of watching Meryl perform as opposed to watching Rachel, mm. you know, process the things that are happening to her, right? I was, I was watching Meryl and how she's interacting with those around her and there's a scene, I mean the scene's nothing significant, but it's the scene when when she's back in New York and she gets that bouquet of flowers and Mm -hmm. the, the nanny is holding her daughter and you know she's processing the whole thing with the flowers and her daughter is eating what looks to be like an ice cream bar Mm. and she's like eating it with her fingers and she goes to like feed Meryl with Mm. her hands and she just kind of like is dealing with the emotions of what she's been going through that day and she's like eating ice cream from her daughter's hand and and still performing through that I think that this scene works so much better because she's interacting with her own real daughter as opposed to somebody else's because it is that thing it is would be really hard to sort of generate that because if the baby doesn't really like you yeah they're the kid they're not they're not acting yet they're actually there and if the baby doesn't pick up on your energy then that would be really hard but so the fact they didn't have to try and manufacture that that they could really just let it run and just see whatever Mamie did when they were interacting because there's also another thing later when she comes back from New York again and then she sort of comes in and then Mark's telling her off about something about Thelma and then there's all just these scenes of Annie like you know waving to her and then she says something about I'll tell everyone that Thelma's got the clap and I love that Annie just goes like as she's like walking away she just does this little clap which is probably just um, yeah i mean i doubt they're expecting her to do that because you're not going to go hey just in a minute just do a clap i love that the line between performance and just real human interaction is really blurred in those moments it's really beautiful to watch and i love after that mark's left and then all of a sudden annie she just runs back and like hugs her leg then she's pulling out her glasses out of my pocket and going what's this and just like i just love those little scenes because it brings that real genuine connection and heart to it because they're not needing to direct a baby it's actually just naturally happening 
But yes, I did find that also an interesting thing because the three films that Meryl is in that are involved with Nora, she's always playing a real person, even in this one it's a fictional version. But I always find that sure. interesting because Karen Silkwood was a real person. Julia Child is a real person. Nora, of course, is a real person. But also, speaking of Mamie, it's interesting as well. Yes, I think before I've briefly mentioned the series Good Girls Revolt, which told the story of the female staff at Newsweek, which Nora was one of those. So Nora is in that series played by Mamie Gummer, which I find that interesting because Mamie's played a fictional version of a fictional Nora's child and she was also playing Nora Ephron, which is interesting that both mother and daughter have been a Nora. <laughs> All right, well, now that we've covered all of the behind the scenes, everything, production, let's talk favorite scenes. Do you want to kick it off, Dan? I don't know that I have necessarily favorite scenes. I mean, there's the scene that we have to talk about, which is towards the end. I think it's brilliant, but we'll get there. I kind of feel like I want to talk about some of the performances that I like, because, you know, we talked about how stacked this cast is, Mm -hmm. some of the supporting characters. So I love Stocker Channing and Mm -hmm. Catherine O'Hara in this movie. And I found them both to be sort of prototypes for what would become Marie in When Harry met Sally. Mm. Like, Marie is kind of both of them. Yeah. I didn't know Stocker Channing was in this movie, so I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, that, that's Rizzo. Okay, and she's married to Richard Mazur, who I love in The Thing. So, they're a great couple. I love watching those two interact, mm. but like, Catherine O'Hara, never a bad decision to put her in something. No, never. And they both really feel like the characters in the book. Do they? Okay. Totally just seem that's what Betty is like and that's what Julie is like, so they're very much just a perfect fit. And Catherine O'Hara is perfect in that because she can give these big performances which other actresses it would feel like they were just completely overacting but she can give you this big broad thing but still keep it in like sort of close to her chest so it's she seems like a real person even though she could anyone else she'd seem like she was wildly just like too much of a person but it just works with her and the fact that every now and again when she gets more gossipy she gets like a real texan sort of twang going on yes yep yep Hey everyone, like, do you know Thelma's having an affair? Like, she gets all like very yes. Texas. I think because she's just getting really excited about gossip, she's just forgetting and she's going like full Texan accent. <laughs> Okay, so I actually do have a scene we can talk about because mm-hmm. it involves like all of these characters that I love. Mm-hmm. It's the scene early in the movie when Rachel and Mark are getting married and Rachel's got cold feet mm-hmm. and she's hanging out in the bedroom. Yes. And we're meeting all of these people, all of these characters at their wedding, but we're being introduced to them in those scenes where yeah. they're, they're each taking a turn to try and coax Rachel out of the bedroom to go get married. Mm. And so we're understanding her relationship to them. You know, we learn that Julie and Arthur are Mark's friends. Yeah. We learn that Mark has a history of treating women poorly, mm. but that she's different for some reason. We meet Vera. Maureen Stapleton is always amazing. Mm. I don't think we meet Betty in that sequence. No. We don't. We don't meet her partner, Dimitri, either, who, brilliant performance by Milos Foreman, Mm. who I've never known to be uh, (laughs) an actor. I feel like that was probably a Jack Nicholson Possibly, yeah. Maybe because they worked together before, so he might have gone, do you want Milos Foreman? He's available. Yeah, he's awesome. (laughs) He's available as Betty's live-in boyfriend that they're always joking (laughs) about. She'll jump him eventually, but I think they're very happy together. (laughs) Yeah, they're definitely like the most interesting couple in this movie. Mm -hmm. But we do meet Rachel's father, played by Stephen Hill. He doesn't even have a name. He's Rachel's father, Mm. which is funny to me (laughs) but he is an incredible character we only get to see him a couple times but i love every scene he's in 
And so I love the, the way that the movie introduces all of those characters through that framework of, okay, we're getting married. Rachel's nervous. Mm-hmm. And so we have to have all these characters go in there and try to talk her down from the ledge and go out and get married. Mm-hmm. And so we get a lot of information very quickly. It's all very entertaining. I love that sort of revolving door format. Yeah. And I think it works really well because it, seeing as there's not a voiceover, right, right, Rachel can air everything that's going on in her mind about the whole thing but it gives her a way of getting those thoughts out because then jeff daniels mm-hmm. comes in because he's her publisher because she's, oh that's right she's a cookbook writer there's much more emphasis on the cooking in the book but we can talk about that with the few food scenes not having read the book i picked up on all of the food yeah i mean it didn't get past me i watched this and i'm like oh there's a lot of food stuff in here yeah and, and i'm like this is laying the groundwork for julia and julia i think it was also like- nora just doing a way of letting her fictional version live out her fantasy of being like julia child absolutely <laughs> absolutely thinking, yep is perfect because then meryl went on to play julia child in nora's final film so it all just lovely little full circle i did watch the movie waiting for this vinaigrette to show up and it never does <laughs> but the key lime pie does and yeah. i was so happy to see that make an appearance so yeah not just the food you see on screen but like at the wedding reception you've got those maitre d's talking about food yeah because they're just running through like a recipe because they have time because rachel's not coming out to get married <laughs> <laughs> yes so they're talking about food yeah and then rachel at one point is talking to julian on the phone yeah and she's talking about the different meals she's prepared that week and and it all sounds much more sophisticated like weekday dinner than I've ever experienced. So yeah, I definitely picked up on on all of the food, but I wish there was some more in it because it sounds like there's way more in the book. Yeah, there definitely is. But yeah, this revolving door wedding scene, it does work because it gives us her thoughts. But in the book, it shows Rachel's doubts because there is a period in the middle where they actually break up before they get married because he was cheating. (laughs) And I think Julie and Arthur, when he's trying to win her back, they come and go like, he's different with you. Like He's still just doing his other cheating stuff from before but he's completely different with you and we love you and we love you two together so we have that instead of the doubts at the wedding not just had doubts he's already been cheating so she's already kind of going "Eh." and she's already iffy about getting married again anyway Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the book which isn't what happened in real life with her first husband but her first husband cheated on her as well in the world of heartburn yeah but yeah, the food, there's only a couple of times that she's actually making food. I think that's why I feel like there's not enough food stuff. There's not enough Rachel testing recipes. Right. Throughout the book, there's this bit about she's trying to come up with the perfect recipe for four minute eggs, but she does it for three minutes. <laughs> she does three minute, four minute eggs. So it's these little things that in between she's sort of talking about, I was doing this, I was testing a recipe. You get just a lot more of that. But this one, there's not really that much Rachel in the kitchen. Right, right. But yeah, the vinaigrette clearly pops up in the book several times. She's always like, I'll never tell him the vinaigrette recipe because you'll never get a vinaigrette that good. And if he doesn't know the recipe, he can't leave me. Like, <laughs> and then at the end, when she leaves him the second time, the evening before she goes back to New York for good, she teaches him the vinaigrette recipe. And that's when we get the recipe. And that's where the cool. iconic Nora vinaigrette comes in. But yeah, the fact that it's missing from the film. I want the vinaigrette to be in there. Yeah. There's a carbonara, which actually in the book, it's not carbonara. The spaghetti carbonara scene? The spaghetti carbonara <sighs> That scene is fun because they've met. They met at that wedding. They went for drinks. They went to the cinema. They slept together. And then, yeah, they're watching. They're watching The Brain That Wouldn't Die. 
Yes, about a woman that got decapitated and then her mad scientist boyfriend was somehow figuring out how to power her brain in some other woman's body. But I just find that a funny thing that that's what they were watching in the background. But it is four o'clock in the morning, so that makes sense. Yeah, I nearly leapt out of my seat <laughs> when I noticed they were watching The Brain That Wouldn't Die because yeah. I have seen that movie on a big screen. And it is awesome. I mean, it's horrible, but it's so much fun. And I just like of all the movies now, I'm a very big fan of like old monster movies. And so it's an old B movie. And I've watched that multiple times. So I love that. Like they never really address it by name. It's just in the reflection. Yeah. Listen, I love how it's in the reflection, not that we're seeing the TV. Yeah. It's reflected behind them as they're eating their four o'clock spaghetti carbonara. Oh God. And that's all I want is to wake up at four o'clock in the morning, watch that movie and eat spaghetti carbonara. Mm. I mean, that, that scene made a huge impact on me. Well, that's just so like Nigella as well, like eating a big bowl of pasta in bed. <laughs> it's such a foodie thing to do. And I don't think I've ever seen two people eat from the same bowl like that either. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just remembered while we're on the food portion, I want to sort of segue to how many of these food scenes are scenes where it's like the friend circle, like all hanging out and just like having fun conversation. Mm-hmm. Those are some of my favorite scenes in this movie. Just watching Rachel and Mark interact with Julie and Arthur mm. or Betty and Dimitri or all six of them together, this friend circle, and just watching people who are not in their 20s. They're all hanging out together, having dinner parties. Mm. And that felt very Nora, you know, because a lot of her movies include that. Just all the friends getting together to either play games. Like I love that scene in the yeah. restaurant where they're like listing like their five characteristics. Yeah. That was fun. So yeah, I love the Nora of that of having like 30 somethings all get together and mm. just like hang out have dinner parties have fun intellectually stimulating conversation so yeah I really enjoyed that as well yeah it was very Nora the way food was just a way people came together and how people communicated and that's just extremely Nora and clearly that's gonna keep coming up in the rest of her films that food as a community yes bringing everyone together what were some of your favorite scenes well I think there's one scene it's just a very small simple one it's one that I quite like because I think it shows the way, as we've said before, Nora, even though she didn't live there for a while, she was a New Yorker at heart and hated leaving. So the fact that she had to move to Washington, she hated that. And Rachel hates that too. But there's one night that they go to that party and it's like a Washington party and she doesn't want to go in the first place. Oh, yeah. And then you just get this, which I think is just a great Mike Nichols thing of the way he went around the table, but you just sort of go around the table. Mark's having a conversation. You sort of keep going. Interestingly, Thelma is at that table as well. Before we know that's Thelma, but we just sort of pan past all these people having conversations at this tiny crammed dinner table. And then all of a sudden you get to these two men leaning (laughs) at each other. One's waving some cutlery. One's waving a cigar. They're having this like big political argument. And then the sandwich between them is Rachel. And she just has this (laughs) perfect look her face of like she's just so done she's so fed up and she's just glaring at them like looking like between the two men and then later she walks out going they were just like completely talking over me like I wasn't even there and I just feel like that encapsulates the whole thing of she hates Washington and it also just sums up what it's like being a woman you're just there and men just talk over the top of you and like literally they're talking over the top of her and they don't even notice she's there and they're just having this stupid political argument and she doesn't care about the politics of it all because she's a food writer and she just hates Washington and I really like that just sums so much of the book. Meanwhile, back in New York, she has her therapy group where she is allowed a voice, right? Yeah. Aside from Diana, who is probably my favorite character in that group, just because I feel like 
every one of those therapy groups needs to have somebody who just complains. Yeah. Needs the attention, you know. And her thing is always, you know, I can't decide if I want to go to club med. Yeah. Rachel's like, but I need to speak. And then she starts telling her thing. And that's right away. She's like, all the interesting stuff happens to everyone else and not to me. So then Diana's having a cry about that. But then <laughs> yes. they get robbed, robbed at gunpoint. Right. But there is one of the bits in the book that one of the guys in the group goes like, oh my God, but now we're all going to be in the paper. So now we're all going to know each other's names because they always go like, no surnames in group. But every- right. everyone pretty much knows their surnames. So he's excited. Oh God. They finally get everyone's surnames. I did really enjoy as the thief robs them and he's on his way out he apologizes for taking her ring and then he's Got like a laugh out of- lay on your stomach and she's like I can't because I'm like about to have a baby <laughs> he's like the worst petty thief I've ever seen in my life yeah. but I love that he, he makes a point to apologize for the ring to her mm. specifically gotta laugh out of me I think they'd all then need group therapy about that yeah if they didn't need therapy before that they should probably all be in therapy after yes and speaking of her group funnily enough an earlier scene we see the group where she's telling them about that she's pregnant there's a christmas tree in the background (gasps) that's our first nora christmas scene i missed it which is amazing because later on we know despite being jewish nora loved christmas and we're gonna get a whole lot of christmas in our next film but this one i was like there's a christmas tree there's some christmas there's a nora holiday scene i watched this movie twice and i did not catch the christmas tree Mm. so now i gotta rewatch it so Christmas watch, we got one Christmas tree. So okay. this is our first time with a Christmas tree. Okay, cool. Holiday. I mean, clearly Christmas didn't have a place in Silkwood and not in Perfect Gentleman either. Oh, and speaking of Perfect Gentleman, interestingly, when I listened to the audiobook, there was a bit, which now I think when I watched Perfect Gentleman, I feel like it was sparking something in my brain that that's why it felt really Nora. There was a scene where Lizzie was talking about, as played by Lauren Bacall, was talking about the two moments where she sort of knew that she was able to leave her marriage because it was something about someone had given her an inheritance or something and it meant that both times she had an out for the marriage which I remember saying in that episode that that seemed like a really Nora kind of thing to say and then interestingly in the audiobook and in the book at the end where she's at the jeweler because she gets the ring back but the stone is right. loose so she goes to the jeweler where the ring is from and he keeps going you know I've always said to Mark that I really love that ring and I'd be happy to buy it back and then the jeweler scene is the catalyst for Rachel leaving Mark for good because then he says oh also by the way how are you enjoying that necklace and she's like hmm okay because she's already found out that while she was in the hospital having their second child which both times the labor was quite stressful to both her and the baby in the book she's in the hospital for several days because the baby's tiny and the baby's not very well and she's not very well and then he visits every day except for one day that was Thelma's birthday I mean, your wife is in hospital. Your actual wife is in hospital having a baby. And she's still in hospital and so is the baby. And he's off, even though he said he's not going to see Thelma again. So then she realizes he has been lying to me the whole time. He is still seeing Thelma. He's bought her an extremely expensive neck because then he talks about, yes, the down payment. And they don't have heaps of money. So clearly he's spending all their money on stuff for Thelma. So then she goes, well, actually, how much would you give me for the ring? And then in the book, she mentioned something about, and that was the point that I knew I could get out of the marriage. 
language. So I thought that was interesting that Nora had actually written something very similar to that as dialogue in Perfect Gentleman and then wrote it again in Heartburn. Interesting. (laughs) And there was one other line which is said by Marie in When Harry Met Sally when Sally's sort of asking had Harry been seeing anyone and she went oh yeah like you know blonde big tits your basic nightmare and then right right someone in the book I think Betty says it to describe someone so I was like oh there we go that's that line is in Heartburn and it's in When Harry Met Sally (laughs) which like you said Betty is kind of Marie-esque so the fact that Marie said that in When Harry Met Sally is a perfect synergy sort of thing (laughs) if you had asked me if I thought there were like distinct connections between all four of these movies Mm. I never would have imagined this level of connection that's (laughs) fantastic Mm. to have dialogue or stories or or whatever like now I'm really curious to know where Nora ends and her characters begin because they all seem to be extensions of herself (laughs) I think they all sort of were I mean I don't think Karen Silkwood was of course but yeah I think most of her other characters especially later when she's directing the films as well so she's making more of the decisions they are definitely all sort of a not full Nora but they're all like little parts of Nora coming through she's definitely inserting fragments of her essence of her true self Mm. into these movies whether it be the main character or whatever yeah that's really cool I'm glad you picked up on that (laughs) yeah and I think because I listened to the audiobook it reminded me because I read the book yeah in 2020 a lot of stuff happened I wasn't very well at the time so even though it was a tiny teeny little book it took me about three months to read because I just I was not with it so I mean there's a lot about the book from the first read that I didn't remember at all so listening to the audiobook and then I was like oh and I've just recently watched When Harry Met Sally so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because my brain's very Nora (laughs) It's always filled with Nora, but especially at the moment, it's like uber filled with Nora. At the moment, it's kind of like Halloween, Nora. Like they're the two things that are in my brain at all times. So that's amazing. But yeah, speaking about sort of connections to other Nora films, this is sort of more a tenuous sort of one, but it has to do with the key lime pie scene at the end, which is is a big part of the book. So I'm glad that they kept that in this. But that might be my favorite scene in the whole thing. Yeah, because it really just brings everything together and it's all the kind of conversations that they've always had before that Betty's always talking about someone cheating yeah Betty loves talking about that and even though people are like I don't know who that is she's like it doesn't matter they're splitting up and then yeah. she always has to be in the know she has to know everything she loves just telling everyone's gossip but they haven't Rachel hasn't told anyone that Mark's been cheating on her they sort of think she just went away for a bit because she was visiting her dad right right <laughs> I mean she told some New York people but she hadn't told the Washington people yet I think maybe right. she told right. Julie but it was it was still kind of under wraps she was trying to keep it as you know a secret still because she was just trying to pretend that they could still be together and everything was fine and they'd had their second baby and everything but yes the conversation turns to someone cheating and then Betty starts going in on like well, I don't know how someone could be cheating on you and you wouldn't know and then Rachel's right. just kind of like uh, uh like you know warning, danger Will Robinson like this is getting into <laughs> dangerous conversation territory seeing as four of the people at this table of six know about the fact that Mark's cheating on Rachel yeah, but yeah and then she talks about maybe you do know but you don't really but you have to get a new dream or this scene and in most of the movie i'll say played better for me on a second watch 
because I was picking up on all of the little details, the things that, you know, like she talks about, like things that I think she mentions, like you hear like this horn or a bell, like in the distance, these like signals that something is wrong, but you're so Mm -hmm. in the moment, you're in this dream, you believe that the relationship you're in is true and honest and the person you're with loves you and you trust them. You know, you Mm -hmm. sort of ignore all of those signals, those red flags. And it's not until like something beats you over the head that you realize what essentially kills the dream. You know, you wake up and, oh, this is the reality of that situation. So similarly to to Rachel, I watched this a second time. Yeah. I'm like, oh, every time he goes out to buy socks, he's yeah. cheating on her with Thelma. And, I, and like the socks never registered with me like that first time through. Mm. I didn't really know where that final scene was going to go. Of course, I knew that she knew that he was still cheating because of the jewelry store scene. Yeah. I didn't really understand how this scene was going to play out. But like watching it a second time, Mm. I know where she's going. And I love how methodical she is about Mm. like she's having the conversation, not as if it's about her, right? She doesn't doesn't make it about herself. She's speaking very objectively. She gets up as if she's about to like serve dessert. Mm. slowly goes to the, to the kitchen, opens up the fridge, prepares the pie. And then like by the end of her, her monologue, mm. she slams the pie right into his face. And that second time through, it was so much more satisfying. And I think the fact that she made the pie, as, right. even though she wasn't planning to mush it into his face, the fact that she made it made it even better because then she could go, I made this and I'm mushing it into your face. But I, I like to believe that she made that pie knowing that it was going to end up on his face. Like she put as much care into a pie that was going to be smashed into his face as she would have if they were all going to eat it. I don't know. That's what I read in that scene on a rewatch. I don't know about you, but I, I think that scene is, is beautiful. Yeah. Well, the bit in the book when she talks about it, which is the bit that has the uh, key lime pie recipe in it, it starts with, mm-hmm. if I had to do it over again, I would have made a different kind of pie. The pie I threw up oh, Mark made okay. a terrific mess, but a blueberry pie would have been even better since it would have permanently ruined his new blazer, the one he bought with Thelma. But Betty said bring a key lime pie, so I did. But then she went, okay. let's face it, I wasn't ready to throw the pie. I think it was more just, there was a pie? And I think she was saying she wouldn't have thrown the pie if they'd been eating in the dining room, because apparently Betty had really nice carpets that she wouldn't run ruined. But she sort of <laughs> said, maybe the fact that we were in a kitchen and the floor was lino, maybe that also added to it, because then I wouldn't be worried about pie going up. But I love right. the fact that she just like mushes it into his face and then it instantly goes, give me the keys. And then yeah. she's just like, okay, I won't be coming to Thelma's party. And then just walks out. And I love that's all she says. And we don't see like a scene of her explaining anything. She just, nope. and then she's off to New York. So it's like, take that. <laughs> Which actually, yeah. that's the connection bit I was talking about. In real life, she didn't mush him with a pie, but they were, after finding out about the infidelity while she was pregnant, it was after she'd had the baby, they were at a dinner party at Sally Quinn and Ben Bradley's house. Sally Quinn is a reporter for the Washington Post and Ben Bradley is the executive editor. Interestingly, in the film The Post, the publisher, Catherine Graham, played by Meryl Streep and Ben Bradley was played by Tom Hanks. So that is a sort of little tenuous connection to the world of Nora. But yes, apparently they were at their house and they were having a conversation that turned toward cheating. How would you not know that someone was cheating on you? And then Sally Quinn is quoted as saying, I said that there was absolutely no way a spouse could be cheating and the other spouse not know about it. Efron asked 
asked for a bottle of red wine and proceeded to pour it over Carl's head. The wine ran down all over his clothes and he just sat there. He didn't move. And she just kept pouring. Glug, glug, glug. It was like slow motion. Nobody said a word. Ben and I were staring at each other. Finally, she finished emptying the bottle and put it down, and Carl was sitting there with his hair all down. There was this long silence, and finally Ben said, Well, we all go through troubled times. (laughs) One of them said, I think we better go, and they got up and left. So it did happen in real life, but it wasn't a pie, and clearly it was something that probably made a lot more mess, so I hope they didn't have a carpet wherever they were sitting. (laughs) Just as dramatic, if not more so, because you Mm -hmm. know it took a lot longer to empty an entire bottle of wine. Mm. That's... I think it's a well-deserved, I think it definitely deserved either a pie or a red wine shower. That's fantastic. I'm watching this as an adaptation of a novel that I know is based on Nora's life, and I assume that the broad strokes are kind of true to Nora's experience, but I love that level of detail, Mm -hmm. that there was a moment, even though it was with different people and with a different, it wasn't a pie, it was a bottle of wine. I love that she had that exact same flair for the dramatic. She dealt with it in a very, very, very similar way that like Mm. i mean that that is a that is a movie way to handle a problem (laughs) no one in real life does that except like (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean the movie doesn't exactly finish at that point but it's a perfect crescendo to finish because really she then just packs up after that and goes back to new york and we see her leaving washington forever i almost feel like the movie overstays its welcome just a little too long like the pie is the big finale and then we have this whole sequence getting the kids getting on the back on the airplane mm-hmm. and singing the itsy bitsy spider on the airplane and like i don't know about you but if i was on an airplane and there was a toddler behind me singing the itsy bitsy spider <laughs> over and over i would change seats i don't know that i could handle being on that flight <laughs> that's like the one one moment where I'm like, oh no, I can't, I can't deal with the singing child on the airplane. Well, it was either that or the new baby was going to cry. So, <laughs> sure, we had to entertain the two youths. It ends on this like really triumphant note, and we didn't necessarily need that sequence. I'm just like, get on the plane, girl, go back to New York, live your life. Mm-hmm. Movie's over. Start the credits. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just a personal thing for me. Yeah, I, I love that pie scene, and mm-hmm. promise you, like in the next month, I think hopefully before this episode comes out, I plan to make Nora's vinaigrette Mm -hmm. and I plan to make that key lime pie and I will be sure to document it and post it on Twitter. So listeners... Pixar, it didn't happen. Give us the pictures. (laughs) Give us pictures of your pie and the vinaigrette. Maybe even a video. Maybe film yourself making the vinaigrette. (laughs) I will do what I can, I promise. (laughs) Then give us a review because I have read a few things that people say the vinaigrette is good but it could do with some honey because it's a little acidic. Interesting. Yeah, I've seen some versions where I think uh, it included uh, a diced shallot. So strayed from Nora's pure recipe a little bit but I mean it's a flexible recipe it's a basic vinaigrette you can Mm. add whatever you want to it I think I want to try it unadulterated first and then you know see where to go from there we'll try the original and then you know see if it needs any tweaks yeah which I think Laura would be happy that you've been inspired to make some of her recipes yes I spent a lot of time in the kitchen as you know Mm. and so it almost feels like in that sense this podcast was like it was going to happen anyway there's so much food talk that uh, it was just going to happen and you've always got julia with you in the kitchen that's what i'm saying yeah patch on your apron (laughs) i sure do so very excited about that Mm. all right well do you have any final thoughts on heartburn anything yes yes i think ultimately maybe it's the thing i like most i'm not sure it's hard to quantify but one of the things that come out of this movie really loving about it is that 
You know, like I'm, I'm reminded of that quote. We, we've mentioned it, I think, on our past two episodes. But when Nora said, when you slip on a banana peel, people laugh at you. But when you tell people you slipped on a banana peel, it's your laugh. Mm-hmm. And this movie is that quote personified. Mm-hmm. It is. Definitely. It has a lot of highs and lows, dramatically speaking. There are moments where I really, really feel for Rachel and mm-hmm. the turmoil she's going through. But the movie never lets you forget that you're watching a comedy. So even when she's kind of hysterical, rifling through Mark's paperwork, Mm. finding the evidence of his uh, infidelity. There are lines of dialogue in the confrontation. Like that's a heavy scene, Mm. but there are lines of dialogue that are funny. They're not necessarily laugh out loud funny. They're not knee slappers, but she never lost sight of the humor Mm. of the absurdity of the situation. Yeah. And even that scene that she was at the hairdresser's. Yes. Her hair wasn't finished. Then the hairdresser was talking something about someone was cheating. And then she starts going like, oh my God, people keep talking about Thelma's having an affair. Mark keeps disappearing. And so then her hair's like crazy and wild. It's all over the place. She then rushes home and then she's like going through all the files. And then he's like, I'm home. So then she goes into the bathroom to like hide and puts the shower right. on and then she's standing in the doorway with like her hair everywhere all this steam like behind her and it sort of just is this we're having a confrontation about i know you're cheating on me but it's also this sort of absurd like comedy element that's going on yeah. all of this is happening but she she has mad scientist sort of hair standing in like a foggy backlit room and he's like half dressed yeah you know, he's in his underwear and a shirt and mm. putting on a tie and he now has to face his angry wife so like that's funny it's, I mean, the, the conversation isn't funny. It's a very yeah. serious thing. But like the circumstances in which that whole interaction plays out, like just those details, mm. it's really funny. And I'm glad that the movie never loses sight of that. Mm. And Nora had to be the person to write this because if she hadn't been, these scenes wouldn't have been funny, yeah. probably. Mm. And so she told the story and so it becomes her laugh, you know, her misfortune becomes her laugh. And I think that I come out of this movie, even though it has its flaws. Mm -hmm. Now I really want to read the book because I want to really get it straight from the source. You know, I think this is quintessential Nora. You know, if you really want to understand who she was as a person, this movie is not a bad place to start. Mm. I mean, the book, I think probably the better place to start, but the movie is a pretty solid representation Mm. uh, despite its flaws. And so I, I really loved, uh, despite all of the seriousness of it, she just kept me laughing. Even if it was just a mild chuckle or if I was laughing on the inside, I was always laughing with her and yeah. rooting for her the entire way. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I wish I loved it more than I did. Yeah. And I still feel that every time I see it. But I do feel the book and the film as a companion piece to each other. You know, it's the perfect revenge. Yeah. Revenge is a key lamp pie, <laughs> best served cold. I think Roger Ebert said that it shouldn't have been written by Nora because she was too close to it and it just became this sort of like sour, bitter film. I don't think those criticisms are valid. It doesn't seem like a sour, bitter thing. And it would have been awful if someone else had written the screenplay for Harpin. I can understand that point of view that maybe she was too close. I don't agree with it, but I can understand why somebody might feel that way. I actually feel like the movie might have been improved if Nora had directed it. Mm -mm. She may have made some more interesting choices. This was her third movie as a screenwriter I don't know that she was necessarily ready to direct a movie yet so you know Mike Nichols is a great director so you know it's perfectly fine but instead of saying she was too close to the material shouldn't have written it I think I would be more interested in seeing the version where she wrote and directed it yeah 
Well, yes, we will now be saying farewell to Mike Nichols. He won't be appearing again. And we will say farewell for now to Meryl, but she will appear mm. once again in Julie and Julia in Nora's final film. Yeah, it's not goodbye, it's see you later. Yeah, that film is just a final full circle of everything, of food, of Meryl, of Julia Child. It's just all it's just all there. It's the perfect film to end on. But we won't be ending on that film for quite a while, so don't worry about that just yet. But yes, you can find us at the Nora Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and on the Cage Club network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. So where can the listeners find you, Dan? I'm on Twitter at Dan Cologne. And I also do another podcast. I mentioned it briefly a little bit ago. It's called The Monsters That Made Us. All about the old Universal Studios classic monsters. But if you're into the old horror movies, check us out at Monster Made Pod on Twitter. We're also on the Cage Club Podcast Network. Well, you can find me at Shawnee Made on Twitter and on Letterboxd. Well, thank you once again, Dan, for joining me, for having a great discussion about all things Nora and all things Heartburn. And thank you so much, listeners, for joining us for episode three of the podcast Around the Corner. Now, we're very excited about this, but please join us again in December as we discuss the iconic When Harry Met Sally. So we are very excited about that. We're very excited that that will be our holiday film which is why we started the podcast in September. So When Harry Met Sally would be out December slash New Year's film because it's perfect. It has two Christmases and two New Year's. So it's the perfect holiday Nora film. Yeah, just think about that for a second, that we decided the release schedule Mm -hmm. just so that When Harry Met Sally would come out in December in time for New Year's and Christmas. And it also lined us up perfectly for Salad Dressing Gate. I mean, I mean I know. <laughs> not that we need to be associated with Salad Dressing Gate, but we were talking about heartburn the same time that everybody... It was meant to be. We were meant to start in September. The world's talking about heartburn. We're talking about yep. heartburn. It just all worked out. Talk about serendipity. Well, as we said before, everything comes up, Nora. That's right. <laughs> it, really, it really does. You don't have to look that hard. Nora is everywhere. She is. Thank you for listening to the podcast Around the Corner. You can find us at The Nora Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and on the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Subscribe to the podcast Around the Corner wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you want to send us your thoughts on our show or on Nora, or if you just want to say hello, please send us an email at thepodcastaroundthecorner at gmail.com. Join us in December as we discuss the iconic 1989 film When Harry Met Sally, directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron, and starring Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal. The podcast around the corner, the Nora Ephron podcast, is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. Our intro theme music is Ain't Misbehavin' by the Underscore Orchestra via Free Music Archive.